Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast uh, from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian societies. I'm your guest host today, James Leibold, an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. The post-Mao period has witnessed rapid social economic transformation in all walks of Chinese life. Much of it has been fueled or reflected in the changes of the country's education system. Here to discuss the developments and impact of the education system in China is Ed Vickers. Ed Vickers is a professor in the Department of Education at Kyushu University in Japan and the author of the new book Education and Society in Post-Mao China, co-authored with Zeng Xiaodong at Beijing Normal University, published in 2017 by Routledge. And Ed is also the author of numerous other articles and books that explore education and identity issues in contemporary China. Thank you for joining us, Ed. Well, thanks very much for having me. So, Ed, I thought I'd begin by asking you why write a book about education in post-Mao China? You know, what is it about the education sector that can help us better understand these uh, rather remarkable transformations that have occurred in China over the last 30 years? Well, we decided to write this book on the development of the education system during the post-Mao era because although there's been a lot published in English as well as in Chinese on Chinese education, there wasn't another book that tried to look reasonably comprehensively at the development of the system over the entire post-Mao period. We felt that it was important to try and do that, to look historically at the development of the system, but also at its implications for Chinese society. But not just its implications for society, but also its relationship with politics. The tendency, perhaps especially in recent years, has been to view education as important for economic purposes, ameliorating certain social problems perhaps, but often not looked very critically or very intensively at the political context for education and the way that education is both shaped by and contributes to shaping the politics of particular societies. And in the case of China, the political function of education is hugely important. And often I think it's fair to say quite consciously neglected in scholarship on education because it's, you know, this is a, a sensitive area. But I think without looking at the relationships between education and politics in China, it's quite difficult to understand properly uh, how and why Chinese society has developed in the way that it has over the last 40 years. Yeah, it's almost impossible to kind of take the political out of uh, anything in uh, Chinese life, particularly given that it is a kind of one-party state, you know, run by the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, Precisely. It and undergrids everything. Every yes, and made. so, you know, education fundamentally, and this is a point that we make again and again in the book, is about control. Speaking of that, I mean, there's been a lot of interest of late in the so-called China model. Uh, and I know uh, many uh, Western educators have gone over to China and been amazed at, uh, I suppose, the successes of the Chinese education system. I mean, are there some things that we could generally learn and maybe adopt from the Chinese education system? Do they do some things well? Mm. It's interesting you should ask that question because about 10 years or more ago, when I was still working at London University at the Institute of Education there, I got, I got a phone call one day from a, a Guardian journalist who said, oh, I looked at the website and found out that you're the China guy at the IOE. The British Council has been running a competition for school principals in England, and the prize 
for the best school principals is a trip to China to visit schools in China. Now, you're the China guy there, so you tell me, you know, what can we learn from Chinese schools, Chinese education system? And my sort of rather simplistic response was nothing. <laughs> Pretty blanket response. Well, when these principals go to China, they will be taken to visit not your sort of everyday average schools. They'll be taken to visit elite schools, basically. They'll basically find facilities that are probably far more elaborate and expensive than what they have in their schools back in England. These schools are highly selective. The way that the Chinese education system is set up is that even though these elite schools are public schools, they get funding per student that is far higher than the public schools maybe uh, a mile down the road. Now, England is a democratic society, and in a democratic society, there's no way that a government is going to get away with that sort of differential investment in schools within the public sector. There's an expectation that the duty of the state to deliver education to its citizens, to its children, will be conducted you know, with a regard mm. for uniformity or at least equality to a reasonable extent. That's not the case in China. Given that very fundamental difference, what are these principals going to learn when they go to these schools or that they can possibly bring back and apply in the case of England? It's very difficult to say. Mm. It's not to say that there's nothing we can learn from the mm. Chinese education system, but we come back to the issue of the political context. Mm. It's so fundamentally different. It's difficult to know what aspects can be usefully borrowed or applied. However, I have to say that when the article on this school principal's junket to China was finally published, my comments were <coughs> redacted and the emphasis was on how amazing the school principals found the schools that they went to, surprise, surprise, and uh, you know, how envious they were and how wonderful it all was. Yeah, so as you said, they're being shown a very select slice of the Chinese education system that's kind of glossed up for foreign consumption and uh, probably... Yes, it's Potemkin Village syndrome. Yeah, Potemkin Village, yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. I mean, your book is quite critical of the Chinese education system, in particular uh, this issue of equality that you picked up on. How did that come to terms? You know, we go back to the Maoist era, which was really about trying to break down a lot of this uh, class hierarchy to promote mass education, mass literacy programs. How do we go from a focus on equality to this emphasis now on elite education? Yes, the Mao era was all about equality. And certainly during the Cultural Revolution, at least rhetorically, the leadership placed a lot of emphasis on challenging the sort of role of education in reproducing class and hierarchy. But the approach they took was violent. Intellectuals, including high school students, were violently displaced from cities, relocated to the countryside. And in the midst of all this, rural education to some extent took off during the Cultural Revolution, but not in a really sustainable way because the intellectuals who were crucial to that process were not, by and large, persuaded of the virtues of an egalitarian or uniform approach to education. They were forced into it at the barrel of a gun. And as soon as Mao was out of the way, um, they reacted against that. And in fact, between 1976 and 1978, the overall political situation in China was quite uh, unstable. And the end to Maoist orthodoxy was not formally declared until 1978. But already in 1977, 
education was the first area of public policy in China that was radically reformed post-Mao. Because, as I said, elites were not persuaded of the egalitarian approach by what they experienced during the Cultural Revolution. Quite the opposite. <laughs> they were determined to overturn it as rapidly as possible. College entrance exams were reinstated. Moves began to invest in key point high schools and universities and elite institutions at all levels of the education system. This switch in Chinese policy from that time has, I think, locked in elitism and inequality into the education system and by extension into Chinese society over the last 40 years in ways that are now proving very, very difficult to challenge or moderate. You mentioned the university entrance exam, this Gao uh, Kao that's uh, taken every year where university students across China compete, presumably on a level playing field. Uh, they all take the same exam, that it allows people who maybe don't come from a well-connected family or mm. someone from a rural area to, well. you know, do really well in this exam, and that provides them with a gateway into Beijing University and onto mm. a career. I mean, is this kind of, is this all myth? Well, public examination system in China is incredibly complicated. I mean, it's something we go into at some length in the book. But you say, presumably, students throughout China take the same exam. Well, you might presume that, but it, they don't. They don't take the same exam throughout China, and they don't take the exam on the same terms. Now, there have been significant changes over time in the way that the examination system works uh, since the 1970s. And to some extent, very recently, there have been moves to re-centralize or to some extent standardize the uh, college entrance examination. But it's basically organized regionally. So since the early 2000s, there have been moves to localize the Gaokao. As I said, I think these are being challenged now or, or changed. But for the last 10 or 15 years, this has been the case. The exam in, that students in Beijing take is not the same as the exam that students in Shanghai, for example, take. Whether the exam itself is the same or not, or similar, you enroll for the Gaokao in the province where you're registered. So students who are formally registered as residents in Shanghai take the Gaokao there. Students who are formally registered as residents in Sichuan take it there. So if your family originally comes from Sichuan and your parents go to work in Shanghai, when it comes to taking the Gaokao, you can't take it in Shanghai. You have to go back to Sichuan and take it there. Not just for the college entrance exam, but actually in most cases for the high school entrance exam. And depending on which province you take the Gaokao in, your chances of entrance to elite universities can be rather different. Key universities have quotas for entrance from particular provinces. Now, this is a very controversial area within China, and it's an area over which there are many very fierce arguments. Uh, and there have been changes in the last few years. But five, six years ago, there was um, a controversy over entrance, I think, to Peking University. The number of students in that year from Beijing Normal University's, I think, number two affiliated high school entering Peking University was the same as the number of students from Guangdong Province, population 70 million, uh, entering Peking University. Those kinds of inequalities built into the system. Just take the example of, say, 
uh, two different people in Sichuan. The son of a rural farmer as opposed to a son or daughter of a party member who lives in Chongqing. In theory, they're taking the same exam, right, which would allow um, the son of the farmer uh, happened to be really good at math or had a gift of some sort, he would be able to take the exam, score quite highly, and then get into a really good university. I mean, that's the argument that some people make for the fact that the entrance exam promotes a type of meritocracy. What are some of the problems with that argument, or do you accept that? Well, in theory, this is true. For centuries in China, public examinations have been legitimated through these sorts of stories about, uh, you know, son of a peasant who works hard by candlelight and passes all the exams and becomes a, an official in the imperial capital. You know, and there are instances, rare instances, of that happening. But we can assume that the son of the farmer and the son of the official in Chongqing have rather different incomes, resources, connections. Consistently, it's either connections or resources or some combination of the two have been crucial if not decisive, in determining access to high-quality education and ultimately to elite universities and elite jobs. Mm. And increasingly, money has played a role in post-Mao China, particularly since the 1990s. And one way in which the access of peasants and you know, urban elites is skewed relates to shadow education, exam preparatory, cram schooling. Now, in the countryside, this is not available, mm. basically. Even uh, if it was. Even if it were. Money, yeah. Even if it was, they wouldn't have money. Yeah. Or the teachers wouldn't be prepared to go there. Yeah. Whereas in the cities, everybody's doing it. There's huge competition for you know, what are perceived as sort of different qualities, different levels of um, cram schooling. The growth of that shadow education system has accentuated the inequalities in access for rural kids and urban kids. I want to move on to the issue of sort of ideology. I mean, one of the points that you make in your book is that a big part of the Chinese educational system is about instilling a degree of conformity in students, disciplining them in a whole range of ways, but one of them being to ensure that they are patriotic, that they're strong supporters of the current regime. What cost does that come at uh, for China? Uh, not only Chinese citizens more broadly, but also the education system in particular? Well, the use of education as of uncritical patriotism conflicts with other aims that the government, for one thing, has for the education system. So increasingly, uh, over the past 20 years, officials have been talking about the importance of promoting critical thinking and creativity. It's hard to see how you can have that and have uncritical patriotism, you know, one or the other, but not both. And the emphasis has, by and large, remained on uncritical patriotism, with the partial exception of the most elite institutions. So if you go to Peking University or Tsinghua, you'll find classrooms full of students who are you know, very lively, often very critical. So within certain bubbles, students, academics, teachers are licensed to think. Mm. But most people don't have that license. Mm. Now... We need to be, I think, cautious about overestimating the effectiveness of patriotic education, at least understanding why to the extent it is effective. Patriotic education, ideological education, I think can only ever be effective insofar as it 
chimes with certain beliefs or experiences that people have. And within China, I mean, really, over the past 100 years, nationalism has been a very powerful force, certainly amongst the urban population, certainly ever since the war with Japan. The Communist Party originally founded its claim to legitimacy on its claim to be extremely nationalistic, its claim to be dedicated to the course of restoring China's dignity. Uh, as every Chinese schoolboy or schoolgirl knows, when the People's Republic was founded in 1949, Mao declared on the gates of the Forbidden City, China has stood up. So this belief in China as humiliated, China as needing to overcome humiliation, the Communist Party's contribution to that process has been fairly widespread throughout China. And so as China over the past 40 years has basically abandoned socialism to all extents and purposes, the salience of nationalism in its legitimating narrative has become far more prominent. And to a large extent, the party has been successful in appealing to this latent nationalism within the population. One of the key dangers is that that raises expectations amongst the population that the government will adopt a more forceful stance in its external relations, that China's not going to be pushed around ever by anybody. Mm. Compromise is unacceptable. This strong appeal to nationalism makes it very, very difficult for the government, even if it wanted to, to backtrack mm. from uncompromising positions mm. in its dealings with neighboring countries. Mm. The Communist Party is kind of riding a tiger in yeah. harnessing its authority to nationalism. And it's unclear where that tiger might take it. Yeah. What about on a, a micro level, though, in terms of the students that this patriotic education system produces? Does it result in students uh, that have less critical thinking skills or less able to contribute to the kind of new knowledge economy, new service economy that China wants to develop? It's hard to say. China certainly seems very capable of producing large numbers of young people with highly sophisticated technical skills. The effectiveness of the internet firewall is testament to that. You know, anyone who's dealt with young Chinese students, either within China or overseas, is very much aware that they're as knowledgeable and in many cases as critical as anybody else. But certainly within China, you often find that, that people are critical often within certain parameters. And that's not just, I think, because they're aware that certain things are too sensitive to discuss or acknowledge publicly. I mean, for example, there was research done fairly recently to what young Chinese people, I think, in universities think on a range of hot-and-button issues, including Taiwan independence. That study showed that virtually no one was prepared to countenance the possibility that Taiwan could become independent. I mean, that's not surprising in itself, but not only that, that if it came to it, they supported the use of force. If a study like that is conducted within China, perhaps that result is not very surprising. But I've also found, I don't know about you, in my dealings with Chinese students outside China, that many are also quite unwilling to countenance criticism of some of these what we might call red lines. Yeah, in, yeah. No, I, I think, the, think the you're exactly right. It's a lack of reflexivity, a general reluctance to kind of criticize the party state, 
even be open-minded to engaging in a discussion or a, a debate on some of these uh, so-called red line issues. Maybe it's an open question to me. I mean, to what extent is, is this been instilled in the education system in a way that students are not even aware of their own blind spots, you know? Or is it a more conscious decision that actually, okay, I know this is a red line, I can't cross it? I think it's not simply a question of brainwashing. Propaganda only works insofar as it sort of appeals on some level to our visceral experiences or our preconceptions. If it clashes with lived experience, it's just going to fall flat. I mean, Taiwan was subjected to 40 years of intense patriotic education, Chinese nationalist yeah. education by the Kuomintang. Didn't seem to have much effect yeah. in the end. In the case of mainland China and, and with respect to some of these sort of sensitive nationalist issues. I think there's a, a sense in which the party's line on many of these issues does appeal quite viscerally to the way in which people, either due to education or due to folk memory, view China and view China's position in the wider world. I mean, this relates to some extent, I think, to you know your research on minorities. Most Chinese people, including young people, see China as quintessentially a victim of imperialism. If that is your core assumption, then the idea that China could be a bully yeah, or could be oppressing people within its own borders or outside its own borders on the basis of you know cultural or ethnic difference is, is hard to accept. The idea that China itself might in fact be a practitioner in some ways of, of colonialism or imperialism is hard to accept. In the book you talk about how the educational system's kind of creating or recreating a kind of Darwinian view of not only the inequalities mm. inside China, but also globally. That does chime very much with the lived experience of young Chinese because they're involved in this brutal yeah. survival of the fittest mm. struggle in their mm. daily lives. That's the reality. Mm. And I think to some extent, we can see this projected onto their vision of how Chinese society itself works, but by extension, how the world works. Hmm. It's not a happy vision. And it's easier to understand when you think about the fact that people who have created the system, the people who have benefited the most from the system, the people who are in power today in Beijing are the people at the very apex of Chinese society. And it's easy when you're at that apex to have that kind of worldview that kind of justifies your position of superiority inside China but also helps you to assert your power now globally. You know, a hierarchy like that works quite well for those at the top, of course. It doesn't work that well for those who are down near the bottom. And certainly in the case of China, there are many people, people who have disabilities, people who live in rural areas or ethnic minorities. Often they're locked out of this system. I find yeah. it very hard to kind of rise up through the educational I mean, system. I mean, the belief that the world is a brutal place is a sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the danger. And if you take that assumption, then yes, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. To take a quotation completely out of context, <laughs> don't come to the party or the state expecting welfare handouts yeah. because the world doesn't work like that. Yeah. China is facing inveterate hostility. Rally to the flag. Thanks very much, Ed. Fred, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast at the uh, Apple Store under the Apple Podcasts, as well as on SoundCloud. 
and please feel free to leave a review. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at jlibold. You can also follow Latrobe Asia at Latrobe Asia. I'm James Leibold, and thank you for listening.